The Watch is the latest and the greatest in pop culture from best friends Chris Ryan and Andy Greenwald. Join them as they discuss TV, movies, music, and much more. Check out The Watch on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com, Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on Cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. David, this weekend, I read James Crumley's private eye novel, The Last Good Kiss, and I loved it. What I want to know is, why didn't you tell me about this book sooner? (laughs) I can't believe I never told you about this book. There are literally only like the only books that I ever, well, I say the only like mystery novels uh, vaguely defined that I ever like hand to people in physical copies are The Last Good Kiss and Daniel Woodrell's, uh, uh, well, the 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 Bayou Trilogy, the, the, like the Bayou Trilogy collection is freaking amazing. Um, you didn't hand it to me though. I know, I know, I know. I, I think, I think, I don't know when he could, appeared in my life this right the, the, crumbly but he is just absolutely the best and that trilogy i think loosely it's a loose trilogy is uh is j- just fantastic he's i mean crumbly is sentence for sentence just one of the great writers of all time he's he's j- he it, it's so good you know they tried to make a tv show of that with paul giamatti i think before right before billions or something it's 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 so good but yes i know we talk about this all the time but for the record, I, I mean, most of the people that I'm reading are, I feel like are so sort of like baked into the fabric of well, every used bookstore you go into that it's sort of beside the point for me to mention them. But there's all the oldies, right? Like everybody reads is read like James M. Cain and sure. Jim Thompson is sort of unavoidable. I love Jim Thompson to death, but he's sort of unavoidable. Um and everybody, I think a lot of people have like a, you know, like Chris and Andy love Ross McDonald. I'm like a John D. McDonald guy, although Ross McDonald is good. Those two are like in mass market paperbacks and, you know, competing for space. Um, but if you don't read, I mean, if you want to read some good stuff, uh, most of these are people who pe- you've heard of, but Horace McCoy is, has a very special place in my heart. Uh, David Goodis, Cornel Woolrich, uh, Chester Himes, but he's really famous. Um, Charles Williford. I'm going down the list here. And there's like the modern ones, you know, George Pelicanos and Elmore Leonard is sort of beside the point. But those those first names, just read all of that and then come back to me and we'll <laughs> we'll, we'll see we'll see if I, I forgot say, anything. That's kind of that a point. lot. David, by the way, will be roaming the aisles at the Mystery Bookstore this weekend <laughs> if you need any further recommendations. <laughs> those yeah, those are the, those are the Those the, dozen the, weren't enough. I'm going to send you, I'm going to send you a stack of books. So you'll never be able to ask me again, um, how I, if, why, why I didn't tell you about somebody coming up on today's show. Donald Trump is back at CPAC. 
We discuss, plus here come these celebrity author coronavirus books. All that more in the Press Box, a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. Hello, media consumers. Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker here. David, I regret to inform you that Donald Trump is back. You waiting for a big response there? Because I don't know if I have one left. It's <laughs> <laughs> kind of waiting for a sigh or a... <laughs> I thought we were beyond this. I thought we as a country had oh, moved no. beyond... Um, no, no, no. We as a country may sort of be beyond this, but CPAC, CPAC is definitely not beyond Donald Trump. And they invited him to speak on Sunday afternoon. A few amazing details before we get into the meat of Donald Trump's speech. And by the way, I don't want to say I've missed these because I have not missed Donald Trump being president. But remember when the news was just amazing details about things Donald Trump did? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I remember that very well. Yes, not the policies, not the not the ruinous policies, but just things that happen in the Oval Office between like 2 and 2.05 in the afternoon. Yeah, or on the golf course or in, right. in, in route between the Oval Office and the golf course, yeah. We got some of those on Sunday. First of all, Trump was an hour late to his speech. Now, that's not unusual for politicians, but conservative guy Matt Schlapp went on stage and pretended that Donald Trump wasn't late. <laughs> Everything is going according to schedule, he said. <laughs> because if Donald Trump did something bad, and everyone pretended he wasn't doing something bad. What's the worst that could happen? Uh, it, it was a very, very weird situation, right? I mean, and and I know that there was so much that we saw that was sort of evocative of, well, the era we just got out of. But I feel like that that in itself was just that that little obfuscation about where Trump was was just a perfect little little version of the previous four years where somehow the lie seems way more suspicious than the truth. Right. I mean, like everybody was like on Twitter theorizing that he would was who I think Jonathan, Jonathan, or sorry, John Marshall suggested that he might've been like, he might've saw like a process server on the way in. So they were ducking him by the door. <laughs> I don't know how facetious he was being, but these sorts of rumors are popping up all over the place. And in fact, it was just, he hadn't left his hotel until like, well, after the speech was supposed to begin. When Donald Trump finally did arrive at CPAC, the New York Times' Aaron Schaft took this amazing picture. Did you see this? Donald Trump looking at himself backstage in a full-length mirror. It's, wow. Yeah. Kind of a flattering photo, as Donald Trump photos go, I must say. It's hard to tell. Is that one of those, like, it's impossible to buy a mirror for your house, but there is that just one variety of, like, door height skinny mirror that for some reason you can always get for 20 bucks? Is that what that is? I think so. That every apartment in New York had in the yeah. 2000s. Isn't that one of the most shocking things about adulthood, that mirrors cost, like, a hundred and something dollars to get? <laughs> <laughs> Who knew? Uh, last detail before we get to the speech, the Washington Post found a CPAC attendee carrying a sign that said, give Trump back the nuclear codes. Wow. Now, I know there are a lot of people that still want Donald Trump to be president that wish he had actually won the 2020 election. But do they really want Trump to have the nuclear codes? They're saying there's a lot of people out there that still believe Donald Trump is president and that he won. Um, but those are, oh. your, you know, the, the, the QAnon supporters for you out there. Um 
but yeah, the nuclear codes thing sort of goes against. Well, what I know, we in our in our liberal bubble thought we were informed over the past four years that all the even the most ardent Trump supporters were like, well, I wish he'd stop flying off the handle on Twitter all the time, right? But you know, I, I guess <laughs> power's power. Is there an offshoot of QAnon where Donald Trump is secretly still present but just doesn't have the nuclear briefcase? Well, yeah. The, okay, I'm I'm not sure about the actual like locale of the nuclear briefcase. I believe that this, the 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 people who still believe that he is uh, pre- president and will reveal himself on March 4th or March 20th, whatever it is, probably believe that he is still in control of the nuclear football. Okay, I got you. I got you. Now, David, what did we learn from Trump's speech and CPAC generally? Well, (laughs) we saw the beginning of what the Washington Post Philip Bump called Trump's attempted post-insurrection marketing pitch. So we know what happened in Washington, D.C. on January 6th. Joe Biden became president on January 20th. And now here we are on March 2nd. And this is Trump trying to reintroduce himself post-insurrection. Part of this was the big lie that you mentioned that Donald Trump won the election, that he is still claiming he won. As he spoke on Sunday, members of the crowd chanted, you won. Uh, Who knows, Trump said from the stage, I might even decide to beat them, meaning the Democrats, for a third time. Dave Weigel of the Washington Post called CPAC Copechella because (laughs) everyone was coping with the fact that Donald Trump is not actually the president of the United States. I mean, the cope, it's a weird way to cope, right? I mean, its I mean, coping might be giving him too much of the benefit of the doubt because it did see, sort of seem like nobody there was under the impression that he had lost, or at least no one was willing to say it out loud. And I think either way, that's pretty frightening, right? I mean, listen, we're going to, we're not going to, I will cut somebody at the tiniest bit of theoretical slack if you, for not like booing Donald Trump while he's on stage and, and, fallaciously proclaiming that he won the the, the the last election. But every speaker, I mean, the entire CPAC seemed to be dedicated to perpetuating, like you said, the big lie. I mean, the, 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 for, for like continuing on this ridiculous, just totally well, treasonous line of argument that, that Trump was the rightful winner of the election when, you know, I think that, well, I don't think we necessarily all believed that that would be over by now, but I think that we were all hoping that that would be, you know, those childish things would be left behind in an era of, well, I mean, now that the real president, President Biden, had taken over. Bump did point out a few things to that uh, line of thought. One is that Trump is kind of trying to nuance his way out of the riot. This was a quote uh, from Sunday. The Democrats used the dot, dot, dot virus as an excuse to change all the election rules without the approval of their state legislatures, making it therefore illegal. It had a massive impact on the election. Now, you see what he's doing there. One, let's just say that's not true. Some of the many of the election laws were passed by Republican legislatures. Many of them were passed long before the coronavirus started. But what he's saying there is he's he's moving a little bit away from, aha, voter fraud, voter fraud, voter fraud. He's saying, no, 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 it was these election laws that were changed. Mm-hmm. That's what made it illegal. So I, my, my friends had a chance to prove fraud. They couldn't prove anything. Chances to put it up before courtrooms dozens of times they couldn't do it so i'm now sort of changing the argument it's not about voter fraud it's about these election laws which we therefore must change 
Well, and that is the entire conservative movement obviously mirrored Trump and his sort of, well, apoplexy, idiocy, whatever. I mean, as, as long as he was insisting that the election was stolen, so did so much of the conservative right wing machine. But now what you see is really Trump reflecting them back right i mean he sort of adopted the arguments that the that the the last stragglers the intellectual last stragglers are making right oh we were never saying that the election was stolen we were just saying that look there are all these like major grievances that one could raise and um you know again one would think that a single judge somewhere might have agreed with them if there were any shred of truth to it uh there's no shred of truth to it but you know it's sort of a it's weirdly concrete and abstract at the same time, right? If you, it's like, it's like when you know gun rights activists try to catch you in a uh, catch you in a in a corner by for not knowing something about like the magazine of a certain gun or something, and therefore you don't know what you're talking about on the whole issue. It's it's sort of a disprovable bit of legalese. But anyway, um, yeah, Trump has definitely has adopted some of those arguments from you know the people who are still making the argument out there publicly. The other thing he did was try to separate the speech he gave on January 6th from the actual Capitol riot. Like these were two very, very distinct events. This is a quote uh, from Sunday. He gave this to Fox. The press doesn't like to talk about it, but the real number was much, much bigger in terms of people that were at the location and went all the way back practically to the Washington Monument. It was tremendous numbers of people, not the Capitol. I'm talking about the rally itself. And it was a love fest, he continued. It was a beautiful thing. So you see what he's doing there. Rally and my speech, love fest. Thing that happened at the Capitol, eh, some very separate event. That was not the thing. And notice there, David, he is also once again trying to insist that he had lots and lots of people (laughs) lined up to hear him around the Capitol. That goes back to the old Sean Spicer days when it was how Mm -hmm. many people attended Donald Trump's 2017 inauguration. Yeah. A little callback there from Trump. See, that's what they do in in quality television shows. You reference <laughs> things in the expanded universe. That's really Donald Trump telling people. It's like WandaVision, right? That's Donald Trump saying, hey, look, remember that? I had many, many more people at this than you might think, too. That's I, I, it's sort of like this the dilution theory of the of the assault on the Capitol, right? If you can just sort of inflate the crowd size to a certain point, it becomes a really important a really like effective tool right i mean it's like when yes. in in two years when every congressional race is going to be decided on the fact that all these republicans voted to to acquit trump of of uh, in charge the charges of impeachment and also overlooked the fact that he that he instigated this riot they can just be like well yeah sir all of the republicans in congress did vote in favor of trump but there are millions and millions of republicans in the world and in the country and not all of them voted that way so you can't really blame us <laughs> we also got a little bit of a glimpse of the post presidency trump he confirmed that he's going to be a republican not a third party guy we already knew that but that was mm-hmm. interesting to hear from his mouth he decided to go ahead and do this kind of fantasy booking scenario where He's the president. We would have had a deal with Iran in the first week, Trump said of his second term. See, Biden is uh, engaged in this thing with Iran. We would have already had that deal done, he said, uh, of President uh, Biden on energy. We, he wants to put you all out of business. He's not okay with energy. He wants windmills, windmills, the windmills that don't work when you need them. Uh, reprising a line of argument that, uh, or a line of bullshit from the uh, snowstorms in Texas. 
He also took claim for the vaccines, right? Like if there's anything that drives Donald Trump nuts right now, it is that he he will not get credit for the vaccine, which of course he was not in a laboratory making. (laughs) But now that people are being vaccinated in this country at Dodger Stadium and everywhere else, uh uh-oh, somebody else is getting the credit for that. (laughs) And he can't stand it. Remember when her remember when Geraldo suggested that we just call the shot to Trump? Not the vaccine, but the like the act of getting the shot. Like, did you get your Trump? <laughs> <laughs> I, that's not, I don't even have a joke. I just remember that. That was great. That was the ultimate act of giving in. That's like saying Trump's not late. You know, we're just okay, okay. We'll call the shot the Trump. Yeah. <laughs> we're just that was that was how that was how low we were at that point in history. This life, this miraculous life-saving vaccine. If we just call it the Trump, maybe people will go get it. Uh, (laughs) Ben Jacobs notes, as always, Trump read his text as if large sections were entirely new to him, offering occasional commentary and going off on obscure, meandering riffs, including at one point the statement, quote, the world is actually a small piece of the universe. Donald Trump (laughs) going a little Carl Sagan on us uh, there. Billions and billions of stars. Oh, my God. We are but uh, we are but small people living in a vast universe. Oh, and let's not forget um, that Trump claims that he he requested ten thousand National Guard troops on the at the Capitol on the day of his speech or the day of the riot, to be clear, um, but was rejected by Nancy Pelosi. Presumably, this is an easily provable thing <laughs> that we will find out is not true um, very soon. But uh, I love the implication, though, that just like he was like, hey, listen, I wanted to control that that treasonous riot that I instigated as much as the next guy. I just the Democrats stopped me from having the guards there to keep my supporters from charging the Capitol as I always wanted. That's it's just it's oh, fantastic. Boy. It's like it's, it's like a hold me back argument. It's fantastic. There was a straw poll at CPAC, as there always is, David, because everybody wants to know who is going to be the 2024 GOP candidate for president. And they did it two ways. If you include Trump in the poll, he runs away with 55% of attendees want Donald Trump to be the nominee one more time and bring it all back. If you don't include Donald Trump in the straw poll, things get more interesting. Did you see that the runaway winner with 43% of the vote is Florida Governor Ron DeSantis? Oh, my God. Was that surprising to you, Ron DeSantis? Can we can we make is there an argument that because of coronavirus that this was a less national travel sort of CPAC, that there was just more of a more of a Florida crowd that would be pro DeSantis? Mm. Is that is that feasible? Yeah. I mean, regardless, it's a home turf sort of vote. I I, I don't know. I mean, for, for at, at a conference where people seemed more than anything else interested in perpetuating the myth that Trump won the election and 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 lauding Trump in any any number of other ways, it's not shocking that DeSantis would be amongst the front runners because he's sort of the most Trump light or Trump Jr. or Trump whatever you want to say of the of the field, right? I mean, the fact that he beat out some of these more establishment candidates, it doesn't shock me. I mean, the, the, the degree to which he won is sort of shocking. Yeah. I, I just think if we had gone into the Cousin Sal Casino six months ago and said, which one of these governor's political fortunes will be brightest at the end of the pandemic, Andrew Cuomo, Gavin Newsom, or Ron DeSantis? 
<laughs> the odds that it would be Ron DeSantis would be pretty high. And yet here he is, 43% in this admittedly unscientific straw poll. But Ron Paul won the straw poll before. So so entertainment purposes only. Let me give you mm-hmm. some of the other results, David. Number two on the poll, uh, Christy Nome of South Dakota, 11%. I had no idea Christy Nome was interested in becoming president. <laughs> uh, Don Jr. at 8%. Mike Pompeo, 7%. Really? Really, Mike Pompeo? Come on. Ted Cruz, 7%. Tucker Carlson, Josh Hawley, and Nikki Haley, and Ivanka, all 3%. Rand Paul, 2%. And finally, last and certainly least, at least in this poll, Mike Pence at 1%. <laughs> Was that a courtesy one? Was that <laughs> you think one person just like looked at the looked at a tote board and didn't see how they didn't have a vote? Yeah. It's like or that maybe... NBA all-star voting we heard about where you know you want to make sure all your teammates get a vote. Oh man, that one percent. Now, as long as we're extrapolating wildly, you wonder if like a really bad showing by by someone like Pence or maybe some of the other, like I said, more more mainstream candidates might show them that hewing to the Trump line is not necessarily the best path forward for them. Certainly, obviously they will not actually take that as the lesson, but maybe that should be the lesson, right? That like the only way you're going to effectively rally Trump's base is to either be a Trump or be a Trump clone. And you know, that's not a viable path for just about anybody. Yeah. I, I, you know, again, it's, I just, the whole, it's almost less, the question of, is Donald Trump in charge of the GOP is settled law. There's no, no question he's obviously running the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. The question is just, what do the Republicans do with that? Like, how, yeah. how in the world do you navigate that? And how how could you possibly come out of that and be the GOP nominee, not tie yourself in knots like Nikki Haley's done over the last couple of months? How How do you figure out a way from here to the 2024 nomination? And I don't know, right? I don't think anybody knows. But uh, Ron DeSantis, that uh, that was wild. Speaking of Donald Trump being back, David, this weekend also brought back one amazing tradition of the Trump years. Ted Cruz was asked to comment on Donald Trump's speech at CPAC. And Ted Cruz said, I didn't see them. <laughs> he did not see the speech. Remember when all those Republican senators didn't see the tweet? <laughs> he didn't see the speech. That's unbelievable. We're Why back. were you there? I mean, it wasn't. I mean, I know he went on late, but come on. I can't imagine you were too busy handing out water in parking lots to do that. By the way, did you see Ted Cruz's speech? I it did. Was all, it just I'm like, going to be honest. It was really like just really bad comedy about coronavirus regulations. Right? I did like, see the Cancun joke that he made at the beginning. Yeah, and that was but supposed he, to be self-deprecating. He went on. He went on to make to have a, a, we, a very odd riff. It was like a, a joke without a punchline. It was an odd riff about how silly it was that you had to wear your mask when you walked into the restaurant, but then you could take it off when you sat down. It's like, mm. <laughs> I mean, it, it was. It was. Yeah, it was just bad. It was the. It was. It was somebody who doesn't get out much who like watches. You know stand-up comedy specials on Netflix and thinks they could do that. It was really, yeah. just really, really embarrassing. I could totally corny. see Ted Cruz watching the blue collar comedy special and being like, I could do that. I could be, I could be one of those guys. 
<laughs> just with a little practice, I decided to go into politics. A little practice, I could be that good. He's a hundred. It's not even blue collar. He's a hundred percent watching like George Carlin and just being like, "That see, see the woke police would never let this happen today," <laughs> and just like tossing popcorn down his gullet. That, yeah, that that's Ted Cruz. When I say I didn't see Ted Cruz's speech at CPAC, I'm not like being like one of those senators. I really did not want to watch that. <laughs> I, I willfully was not going to watch that. And by the way, we got a pretty good overworked Twitter joke going when Cruz said he didn't see Trump's speech. Uh, if only Neera Tandon had live tweeted Trump's speech, then maybe <laughs> Ted Cruz would have seen it. Speaking of which, David, time for the overworked Twitter joke of the week where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious. That all of media Twitter made it at exactly the same time. Send your nominees to at the press box pod where they are always gratefully received. One final scene from CPAC, David, according to journalist William Turton, attendees lined up to get their pictures taken with Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene. Mm -hmm. Marjorie Taylor Greene. It was an overworked Twitter joke or maybe just a good joke to write. Why on God's green earth would you say they're lining up instead of saying they're in the queue <laughs> in the queue thanks to tim moran for that one last night was the zoom call version of the golden globes david you might have seen some content here on the ringer <laughs> daniel kaluuya won a best supporting actor award for judas and the black messiah one problem due to an audio glitch we could not hear the first part of his acceptance speech it was an overworked twitter joke to write daniel you're on mute Thanks to Jordan A. Shafiat for that one. And finally, a tweet that's good news for people like me and David. Quoting here, glasses wearers less likely to get COVID, study says. <laughs> glasses wearers less likely to get COVID. It was an overworked Twitter joke to write, nerd immunity. <laughs> Thanks to Scott Clayton, Benjamin Scott, and Corbin Dubois, or Dubois. Do you remember when we used to live together mid 2000s and like you'd peek into my room on a Sunday afternoon I'd be just reading a book and you'd be like what are you doing and I'd be like oh, I'm just reading a book and you just go nerd yeah. <laughs> yeah I always love that yeah well it's I I'm I am allowed to make fun of nerds because I'm also a nerd that's the way that comedy works if you stole David's bit congrats you made the overworked Twitter joke of the week this episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, 
Get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Time for Yield Notebook Dump. And David, we have entered a new stage of the coronavirus pandemic. The celebrity author coronavirus book stage. Two announcements over the last few weeks caught our eye. Michael Lewis is writing a coronavirus book called The Premonition, A Pandemic Story, which is out May 4th. And Lawrence Wright of The New Yorker has a book called The Plague Year, which is out one month later, June 8th. So you're our publishing guy here. Let's back up before we even get to the celebrity nonfiction author portion of this. When something like the coronavirus is happening, obviously a huge story, obviously an occasion for books. What is going on inside a book publishing house? Are they immediately thinking we need to have books about this and we need to get them out? Are they waiting for pitches, which are going to be inevitable? How does that work? Uh, I mean, both all of the above, I guess. Um, there's um certainly i mean lawrence wright michael lewis writers of that level have a little bit more latitude to write on a certain schedule or to you know let their creative juices flow however they may flow but their agents presumably are leaping into action the moment there is even the inkling that a book might exist at some point in the future to sort of gauge the writer's interest to see if they'd want to do it and they can I mean, you could sell, uh, well, both of them are, are probably under an option contract with a publisher. I mean, maybe, maybe not, but, but there's, you know, Michael Lewis, Michael Lewis's pre last publisher probably has an option on whatever he does next, but regardless, you could sell a Michael Lewis book or a right book uh, with, you know, a sentence, you know, just uh, Michael Lewis on the pandemic, we, we will give you $5 million for that tomorrow. You know I mean? That, that part's pretty easy. And that's, but I mean, there's, I'm sure there are uh, literally tens, if not a hundred other related books that are in the pipeline from authors you've never heard of, or just kind of mid-list authors or, or other big name authors. Um, but those sort of, you know, I, the, a name as big as, well, Michael Lewis or Lawrence Wright, I mean, but Michael Lewis in particular will succeed kind of regardless of genre, but will also at the same time eclipse a lot of other books in the genre. So a um, little bit of a division killer, that one. Now, the coronavirus. This is something that's obviously a huge news story. Do book publishers regard that as like, this is something people will definitely want to read about, will not be able to get enough books about? Or is this something that's so sort of depressing and has affected our lives so much that they there may be less of an appetite to read a book about that? <sighs> I'm tempted to say... It's too depressing, although I think the logic will eventually push against that because the publishing logic, because, well, I mean, this is a totally different example, but like if you have the book that a, if you have the, you know, the book that, a, that the, if you're the publisher of the Da Vinci Code and the Da Vinci Code comes out, you're going to sell a trillion extra copies of the Da Vinci Code, even, you know, obviously it's a huge, it's a blockbuster or whatever. But also if you're the publisher of like 
an art flick that may get nominated for like one Oscar, but doesn't win it. And like, even you or I might not see this movie. Um, you're still going to make a lot of money off of that book because the scale of like movie viewership versus book viewership is so different. Mm -hmm. The point I'm trying to make is, yeah, you or I, or everybody might say I'm, you know, it's too depressing to read about the coronavirus, but there's going to be just so much abstract interest in the coronavirus compared to another popular science book that the coronavirus is probably a safer field like area to publish into. Um, and could certainly, you know, take off. Now, you would think that there would be, uh, there's different sorts of books, right? If we weren't talking about Michael Lewis anyway, I would be sitting here saying, there's a lot more upside in a Michael Lewis style book about the coronavirus than, you know, a dry sort of journalistic recounting of something, right? If you can, if you can find the in, if you can find a way to tell a story that's regard, I mean, that's exciting, almost regardless of whether or not it's about the coronavirus, then, then sure. Tell me, I mean, publish those all day. And there are some that are going to break news and they're going to be important, you know, pieces of history. Um, but it is a depressing area to publish into. And I, and I, it's, I will be intrigued to see how many COVID books there are on the, on the front table of the bookstore, you know, in six months or a year. So you mentioned, David, Michael Lewis and Lawrence Wright can basically sell a book based on a sentence. What other kind of things are afforded to big nonfiction authors like that, mega-selling nonfiction authors that wouldn't be afforded to normal authors? I mean, so the people, I mean, there's many. I mean, all the way down to like, you know, royalty percentages and stuff like that. But um, although less than, you know, once was the case. But I mean, you talk about we talked about, you know, how many books are going to be published in the subject and everything. I mean, the specter of a book by Michael Lewis or Lawrence Wright is going to is not just like theoretically push out, push other books aside. But literally, I mean, uh, there you know, the buyer at Barnes and Noble is going to say, oh, we have a Michael Lewis book on the subject coming out that month. So we want zero copy or one copy of your book as opposed to a thousand if it had come out a month earlier. You know, I mean, so mm -hmm. there's they, they don't you know, they, they don't need to make room for anybody everybody else has got to make room for them um and you know they'll, they'll get the full more more it is more likely than with you know another writer that they'll get the uh, the full strength of the publishing machine behind them you know obviously pr and and marketing also i mean but but even as on the pre-pub side i mean if that, oh, people always talk about how books don't have fact checkers i mean presumably if michael lewis said i want a fact checker that someone would provide one right i mean you you have a lot of power you can throw around so um but you know i mean it's it's i don't think anything too shocking it's a it's a they're they've they've earned their spots you know and and, and these books will probably be great well we've already read the i mean have we read all of lawrence wright's book or is he fleshing out the new yorker piece I would assume that's not the whole thing, right? I mean, it's very, very long. I, I would assume so too. But it's, it's, it's. Um, but we, we kind of know what that one's going to be. Michael Lewis. I'm looking right now on BarnesandNoble.com. This is. It's apparently a taut and brilliant nonfiction thriller that pits a band of medical visionaries against the wall of ignorance. Uh, that was the official response of the Trump administration to the outbreak of COVID-19. So yes, uh, we found our way in. Now, yeah, and they find their way out. And even just from the press materials, like you can already tell it's Michael Lewis, that a 13-year-old girl's science project on transmission of an airborne pathogen develops into a very grown-up model of disease control. A local health 
public health officer uses her worm's eye view, dot, 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 right? We can see the kind of heroes you didn't know about that Michael Lewis found that will tell us the story of this very complex, overwhelming thing in very human terms, mm -hmm. right? That's his gift. That's what he does. You mentioned the um, the the stuff like the Barnes and Noble order the orders the book. I love just being somebody who's on the mailing lists of these from these publishers who gets a like separate email to announce a book. Like if yeah. you have a certain status in the book world, the publisher just sends me it doesn't send me the catalog with the book in it. They say Lawrence Wright is writing a book. <laughs> right. You should you should know about that. And and sometimes even they get like Michael Lewis. The fact that Michael Lewis was is writing a book about the coronavirus got a an article in the New York Times. Mm -hmm. Just to tell us, doesn't even tell us what's in the book. It just says Michael Lewis is writing a book about the coronavirus. That's that's like the level you have attained at that point where it's like it's news that you're writing something in the New York Times and not a blurb either. Like a full blown news article. And I'm not criticizing because when I when I got the paper that day, that was like the first thing I read. I was exactly. like, oh, cool. Yes. <laughs> Michael Lewis is writing. Can we get him on the press box? <laughs> so you think there's going to be you think if we walk into the bookstore in six months or a year, we'll see more than a dozen books about the coronavirus two dozen we'll see major, is, uh, major see is the books? question right if you if you're looking for them yeah you'll find you, you you'll find many many books about them about it i mean and there there'll be scholarly books you know there'll be like like i said journalistic books there'll be uh, all there's there's so many different varieties of of books i mean i mean of, of ways that you could publish that but i do think that there's i mean every publisher almost every single publisher serious publisher will have a book on the subject whether or not they have um the biggest name on and it'll be to some extent you know like like trump books you know like how many more could the could the market possibly hold well i mean we, we, they keep coming out right so um i, I think that we, we will see a lot of them yeah the story's so big too there's all kinds of books you can write about it i mean these are books that sort of take on the pandemic and and sort of how do we fix it? How do we solve this problem? How do we how do we rescue human society? But there's also books like I I saw a book about the NBA bubble that was assigned that mm -hmm. was sold last year. Like they're just it's such a vast story that you can write books about all kinds of parts of it and have them be totally self-contained and different from the other ones. It's true. I mean, and good bookstores are already. I mean, it's it it's not like we're waiting for this wave to come. The good bookstores are already selling. I'm sure huge numbers of copies of like the hot zone and of uh the defoe book uh, the journal of the plague year and i mean all these books about the bubonic plague that that have sort of popular histories that have been published over the past decade have, have been you know those are books that people are very interested in right now so that's sort of the tip of the you know the, the tip of the wave i guess and 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 there'll be many more to come all right david and i will be reading these and you will be hearing these celebrity authors with any luck <laughs> Here on the Press Box Podcast. All right, it's time for David Shoemaker Guesses, the strained pun headline. Yeah. Thursday's headline about a troop of homebound pandemic family singers was Von Trapped. <laughs> I've been sitting on today's headline for a while. It comes from Simon Pollock. It's from Celtics blog. The um. article published before Boston's recent swoon, David, is about the Celtics trying a lineup with both Daniel Tice and and Robert Williams on the floor at the same time. We're both okay. big men. Your hint here is Shakespeare. Shakespeare. What was Celtics blog's strained pun headline? 
Shakespeare. Um, this could have run on the ringer, by the way. Uh, so this is so two key. towers, two, uh, two. <laughs> That's two, wrestling. That's two wrestling. Big <laughs> it's men twin today. towers. Uh, two. Um, two, is two ships passing in the night? Shakespeare. Two. 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 Uh, you got the wrong guy, as Angus King once yeah. said. <laughs> Uh, I was gonna say go with. I thought it was gonna be like two stiffs passing in the night. Or so uh, is the what, what would be? The... <laughs> no offense to Daniel Tyson, Robert William. Um, uh, Here, no, this is elemental Tice. Shakespeare. What is the what is one Shakespeare quote that everyone knows? Uh, to be to to be or not to be too big too bigs or not too bigs. Yeah, too bigs too big or not too big. <laughs> oh, T O O. Too big? No, no, no. Two, two, because there's two oh, okay. of them on the floor at the same time. Too big. Wow. Yeah. I thought that was pretty good. He is David Shoebaker. I'm Brian Curtis. Production magic by Erica Cervantes. We are back Thursday with more lukewarm takes about the media. See you then, David. See you later, Brian.